bit of a lull here on this wednesday pacers boston improbably turned into a a pretty interesting game but utah and houston was another complete demolition and you know my policy on bucks pistons if it had been close we would have gone back and watched it and told you about it but thankfully the bucks pulled away to a 20 point win it was actually close at halftime with the honest in foul trouble but don't really need to talk about that series too much here and since i think we'll have a little extra time i'm going to talk a little bit about the nike hoop summit which was my first look at a lot of the players in the 2020 draft potentially but let's start with the pacers and boston it eventually was a 99 91 win but that was just because the pacers had a comedy of errors late they actually had a chance to tie it with 12 seconds remaining but most disappointingly had a a nice lead after the third quarter and then were destroyed 31 to 12 yes 12 in the second quarter this is now i believe the third sub 20 point quarter in this series for the pacers they had another one of 20 and another of 21 in game one they had an eight point quarter in game or or in game one in that disastrous third quarter the 12 point fourth quarter that was only so after they had a flurry late they had scored three points on one for 11 shooting about eight minutes into the quarter and they also had a 17 point quarter in game two so they've struggled to score at times but it looked like things were actually going pretty swimmingly after that third quarter and then it all just fell apart for them and boston dominated defensively yeah there were stretches of this game where indiana had significantly more vitality on offense nate mcmillan made a few different changes both in terms of personnel and in terms of approach that had benefits they also had some downsides which i'm sure we'll talk about the the change in personnel to me the most notable one was even though we only played six minutes using aaron holiday that instead of tj leaf gave them a little another ball handler his only make of the game was this high arcing layup that went in and but just having another guy out there on the floor for some of that period of time but then the more important part to me was indiana attacking a lot more early in the clock and early within actions and that makes a lot of sense when you're not benefiting from working clocks later you're not getting better looks so you might as well attack early and see if you can get any yeah it was clear to me that they're making the effort to be more aggressive early in the shot clock taking jumpers when they had the slightest opening and that was the right strategy because when you put up 74 points you're probably not going to get a better look later in the shot clock and, and thad young was the one who was the most aggressive early and didn't look that amazing in terms of the stats he finished one of five from three-point range 15 points on six of 13 overall it did hit a three early but when he got it and he was open he was shooting it with no hesitation it's like he never even got coached by doug collins in philly uh the other thing too that we complained about after game one was that he was hanging out in the dunker spot too much i thought he did a better job of getting out to the corner got some corner threes that way even was able to blow by aaron baines on a closeout at one point and so that looked good miles turner only took seven field goal attempts but he was being very aggressive shooting it early he was two of five from three darren collison was more aggressive early on as well so that all looked good and they put up 33 in that first quarter and 29 in the third their second unit you mentioned that they went with holiday instead of leaf and that actually left either bogdanovich or mcdermott at the four at times uh, on that second unit but they managed to make it out from there didn't get killed too badly i think ultimately that may have been a little aggressive in terms of going too hard to offense especially because mcdermott has just been way off in this series i don't think he's made a three and 
he ended up negative seven Sabonis was negative 13 the other thing too is I think if you're going to go to those units you want to have Miles Turner in the game so he can at least give you some rim protection but they're going with Sabonis there and so he's a little bit too ground bonded when you're giving up a lot of penetration to some of those units but I don't think that's why they lost the game it was obviously the start of the fourth quarter where they didn't go very well and then that continued on once the starters returned well wait can I can I mention how extreme that didn't go well was because I I think this is pretty amazing yeah I mean I mentioned the one for 11 at the start of the quarter yeah but so so Tyreek Evans made a three on their first possession of the fourth quarter they for the rest of the fourth went three of 16 from the field that's bad enough but all three of those makes occurred within a minute and 10 seconds they were they made three consecutive ones Bojan Bogdanovich or sorry it was West first then Bogdanovich then Bogdanovich made a step back and those Those are all threes too they they? were all threes they had 12 points all uh, and so they didn't score a two-point field goal in the entire quarter. that's got to be a record that's got to be a playoff record to not have a single two-point field goal in a quarter it very well could be that's that's a hard thing to look up on basketball reference but it's certainly possible and so they they started out this quarter with an 11 point lead then the Tyreek Evans one made it to made it a 12 point lead because Boston had previously scored and then by the time Indiana put the ball in the hoop again that made their lead that made their deficit go from four to one so that Boston was able to score a fair portion of that run was even without Kyrie Irving on the floor Irving was sitting to start the fourth quarter and Boston's offense didn't have as much boost as as you would expect that's you know was the story of last year's playoffs as well and then once they got him back in that was really the rocket fuel that led to the comeback because you combine that defense with Kyrie Irving's offense and you don't need a whole lot else but they got plenty from other guys too yeah we've probably gone too far into this uh, without mentioning Kyrie Irving's name just unbelievable incredible shot making from him mostly with jump shot 37 points 15 to 26 6 of 10 from downtown we said after game one only five three-point attempts wasn't enough for him also had seven assists as well he was plus four in his 39 minutes and he wasn't really doing it at, at the rim the Pacers were doing a really nice job of defending Boston through three quarters and pushing them into some of their worst tendencies they only had four free throw attempts through three quarters Kyrie only had two in the game the Boston is not a high free throw attempt team and they had only scored 11 field goals at the rim through three quarters but nonetheless I mean Kyrie Irving is just that kind of a shot maker and I thought the other thing that was really key here for the Celtics was we finally saw that lineup that we thought was just going to kill people this season their original starting lineup with Jalen Brown Gordon Hayward Tatum Horford and Irving you noted actually that it even goes back to 2017 which was of course star cross for for Hayward and ultimately Irving uh but we saw them do more switching down the end we saw Al Horford shut down Bogdanovich late with a couple of block shots as Bogdanovich was forced to his left and couldn't convert because he has no left hand and had to bring the ball back into the defense and miss um Irving shot chart by the way getting back to this only two out of seven at the rim and the pace of miles turner was awesome protecting the basket and switching in this game but five of seven from floater range two of two from mid-rangers and then that six of ten from downtown and a lot of those floater ranges were getting into the paint stopping turning over either shoulder really just beautiful beautiful isolation basketball pick and roll basketball from irving and that was the biggest reason the celtics won he is an incredible offensive talent and that's a big part of why his absence was so important last year for the celtics they did make it to the conference finals through a, a, a weird 
third Eastern Conference and made it to Game 7 against that Cleveland team. But he gives them a linchpin offensively, uh, someone to go to if nothing's going or someone to go to if everything's going right. And going 13 of 19 on shots outside of the restricted area is pretty remarkable. Something else that was really weird about this game, and it's not necessarily a surprise given the tenor of these two teams, each squad's starting five took a total of three free throws each. Kyrie took two, Tatum took one, Thad Young got two, oh sorry, and, and Bogdanovich got two, so it was three and four respectively. An incredibly low free throw game overall, 19 combined for the two teams, and that plays into Boston's hands. One of my theories of this series was that what Indiana, some of what they take away in terms of like being a low foul team and being pretty good at stopping the rim, Miles Turner had some wonderful blocks in this game. Those are, they're, what they're taking away just isn't that important to Boston's offense, and I think we got a great demonstration of that in terms of Kyrie Irving's shot chart where he, yeah he was two for seven at the rim that's pretty awesome he only got to the line for for two free throws and he still scored 37 yeah the Pacers looked like they were about sunk having scored those three points in the period it was 86 82 with 340 remaining then they hit those three threes in a row to kick it up to 91 89 as Boston was scoring well during that period as well and then there were those two stops that Horford had on Bogdanovich and an enormous three Jason Tatum took him from down two to up one and that really was the winning basket as the Pacers of course would not score again and then the other play that was huge was the Pacers and this was one of the theories of why this Boston lineup was going to be so difficult they didn't really have anywhere to put Darren Collison he was guarding Tatum Tatum was shooting right over him then they put him on Hayward and when Collison went to help uh, on a drive by Tatum Hayward just cut right behind the defense for an easy layup put Boston up three and then the Pacers tried to run this little flare play to the opposite side for Bogdanovich he stopped the the passer threw it like he was going to keep going and it went out of bounds and that was it so a valiant effort for the Pacers I thought uh encouraging in some ways for Boston less encouraging in others uh, because you'd think that they should be beating this Pacers team uh more by more than they have and it's really only Tatum and Irving who looked good and we are reminded especially with Turner on the floor that they don't have a way to create efficient offense at the rim Tatum was good at the rim he had actually seven of Boston's 16 makes at the rim ultimately although some of those of course uh, were in transition I wish they had like a half court shot chart that I would like to see I don't think that product exists in the public realm um what else did you see out of Indiana in this one Thaddeus Young's defense was really impactful especially early at a couple couple of steals that I thought helped set Indiana on the right path and then Miles Turner had he's only credited with with two blocks I thought I remembered him having three but he was affecting shots at the rim was making a big difference there he had a nice pull three right around that time just the type of shot that he should take a lot more and I I wish Nate McMillan encouraged him a little bit we've talked about how Turner maybe not quite for Lopez range but he could do that but I thought over he was as he was as advertised to me defensively also only had three rebounds defensive rebounds actually three total but Boston wasn't killing them on the offensive glass they did give up some key ones though. yeah that jason tatum one in that particular really hurt him in, in the fourth yeah tatum had one where he he biffed a finger roll but then he caught it and laid it up in the and rebound and put it back in the same motion which was really impressive and then yeah they did have uh, there was one that jalen brown had that i remember as being pretty devastating as well go through just a few notes here the pacers stuck with their switching scheme in large part they didn't do it as much on irving in certain matchups late but you know, they had moments where sabonis was on 
Irving and for example and Irving was just making extremely difficult shots I don't think that those guys are playing bad defense but Sabonis he's an example of just why length is so important because he actually moves his feet pretty well and stays in front of guys and just doesn't quite make them uncomfortable when he actually challenges the shot with that short wingspan I thought the Turner was awesome on switches defensively he was stopping Tatum he was stopping Irving those guys would try to drive to the rim he stopped uh, Jalen Brown once too those guys would drive past him but he's just such an intuitive shot blocker and he's so long and he's just he doesn't seem like this crazy athlete but his timing is so good and his length is so good that he can still come out of nowhere and get guys without having to get so close to them when they release the ball that he's falling. He can wait until they release it and challenge the shot. And they were clearly scared of him. They were missing a lot of shots. They only shot 16 to 30 at the rim. And a big part of that was his presence. But I thought the other Pacers, this game saw a lot of ISOs. The other Pacers to me really didn't do a good enough job. And whether that was the scouting report not being good, whether it was those guys not adhering to the scouting report, they didn't force Kyrie to his left and ISOs you have to do that because he's just so deadly with the jumper going right he's also better uh with the floater going to his right jumping off that right foot and he's still quite deadly going left but you can't let him get to his right hand or you're totally dead same thing with Al Horford there were a couple of times when he ISOed that they didn't really force him left they let him shoot a, a face-up jumper as well uh, so I, I really didn't think that they did the best job in individual defense other than Turner who I thought was awesome um Aaron Baines looked to suffer a sprained ankle in the first quarter again and while he continued and he started the second half he was not brought back in and I think it was pretty clear that it, it wasn't working for him he looked quite compromised in terms of his mobility it really just could not cover the ground and so that's gonna be something to watch going forward as he's a really important part for this team smart is already out tice is a massive downgrade defensively so i i think that's a problem uh feel free to break in here by the way if you, if you have any of your own uh own observations you want well, to well, get something to. something i want to talk about was gordon hayward i i thought that hayward had some moments in this one he had that pull up pull up about 20 footer that ended up being an important shot in the fourth quarter and then the the layup which was more just a great off ball movement rather than him looking crisp but i spent a lot of this game both in the I, I mean throughout but really in the early and the late parts most notably thinking about Boston's next opponent should they win and I expect them to win this series and I was starting to get a little bit worried about Hayward just because he didn't show to me he didn't show a lot like of dynamism with the ball in his hands you know he he was a good functionary piece and without Marcus Smart available as he, as he's not right now it's good to see him get him those minutes but I was also like oh man when they're facing a much better team especially a team that can score more reliably offensively so Boston's going to be getting the ball out of the basket more. We, how much value will he provide? And and he has looked better, and I'm happy about that. That he's you know especially over the last month or two he's been better. But is he like closing five against the Bucks? Good. I'm not there yet. Well, it's either going to be him or Marcus Morris. So that's true. Uh, and Morris struggled to 0 for eight, and he missed 15 of his last 17 shots in this series after a, a really important start in Game One that kind of kept them in it early you know Hayward I think the biggest thing for me that I've appreciated about him is that he's better defensively now than he was at the start of the year he's not getting exploited now this Indiana team is not that doesn't have the personnel to really do that but you haven't noticed him not competing as much physically as you did earlier in the season and yeah he's still not as explosive you know he's not dunking the ball the way he was before the injury but he is being more aggressive getting there he uh, had double the foul shots of anyone else on the team at four out of four uh, although i think a couple of those were uh in the fouling situation late after that turnover um 
and he just knows how to play i mean and other than horford he's really the only guy on this team that you think of as a solid passer ball mover keeps the greases the wheels of the offense type of guy so i think he does need to be out there i also thought terry rozier had a nice game he was plus 19 and didn't shoot incredibly well but he ran the offense well he had six assists which you know he's not really known for his passing helped them push it in transition played solid d so I, I thought that he played more of a capable backup point guard sort of game than you know where he's not going to have the spectacular scoring totals that he had last year but uh, they got some mileage out of him together with irving in some units uh, as well and, and he was on the floor for some of their big pushes well, something else i wanted to talk about i love watching Corey joseph play defense he's just just gets into it really nice defender a little bit more versatile than most point guards which i love as well he's been an important part of why indiana's defense has defended so well throughout this season tonight served as a reminder of why you need a lot outside of a guy like that if you want to play them meaningful minutes in the playoffs because indiana just and some of this is oladipo being out of course but they just don't have enough shot creation and if you cannot get that from your point guard reliably then it puts so much more onus on everybody else and so Joseph, a player that I would love to have on my team and everything else, but I would be question. He's a pending free agent, just like three quarters, it seems like, of this Pacers team, and th- he'll help out teams in the regular season a lot. And I think he he will be better as a as an offensive player than he was on this night. But it is hard to you know commit serious money to players like that unless you have just locked in other pieces, you know, like the James Hardens of the world, or if you think of Oladipo as that guy, Oladipo. Yeah, that's it, it. Really is difficult for them with their personnel and you know i think that they've been competitive enough at times in the series that you think they can win one at least in indiana um you know obviously they lose game three then game four gets a little more difficult to get up for although turner did take more threes and was very aggressive shooting the threes when he was out there i will echo my concerns for game one that they just do not use him correctly i mean a couple of examples they they ran this set where thaddeus young was setting the screen he was being guarded by baines so they wanted to involve baines in the pick and roll and so what they did was have turner screen for young first so he would have a little bit of an advantage to go set the screen before his man baines could get in a position and then turner just goes and stands in the dunker spot as you're running a pick and roll with thaddeus young and you know darren collison or something and they swing the ball around and he's still standing in the dunker spot he never moves the whole possession and then bogdanovich drives and his man al horford is right there at the rim and forces a miss and there's just there's no reason to have him stand there right i mean another time later on they tried to go to a couple of young posts ups one of them they didn't even get him the ball until eight on the shot clock so that's that's gonna be doomed to failure you can just double team and there isn't really time to move the ball around uh but then he's staying in the dunker spot that whole time again i mean you're just iso post up with thaddeus young just go stand out at the three-point line and you know maybe he's told to do that and he doesn't you know or maybe it's coaching one of the two but uh it really doesn't make sense if you have Giannis and Nakumpo trying to go to work against a smaller player milwaukee is not going to put someone else in the dunker spot even when it was john henson on the team they had him stand out in the corner at three-point range and so it really when you have a weapon like that especially given how limited guys like Bogdanovich and Young I mean you're talking about those guys as first options or Collison is your primary pick and roll threat like those guys need all the space they can get man and it just doesn't make sense to me you know how many pick and pops did they run not that many so I and that's something that especially you can get a more reliable shot at so and I also would like to see as I mentioned if they're going to go to these Bogdanovich at the four and McDermott at the four lineups put Turner out there with them and really space the floor because and maybe even do it early when Baines is in if Baines is going to be able to play effectively or Tice because then now you're really putting those guys 
the difficulty right because when they go with the Hortford and Baines together Baines doesn't doesn't want to guard out in the perimeter but that's fine he can just guard Thaddeus Young uh and Young took some threes I think you know that was important but he's not the threat that Turner is so you know make Tice or make Aaron Baines actually guard someone at the three-point line like actually stress this defense make them do something that they don't want to do they don't have any other way in my opinion to do that one other thing I wanted to mention we talked about the end of the game Indiana was only down one point after that Jason Tatum three made it with about 51 seconds to go the the three-point pull-up brick did it even hit rim the shot that Wes Matthews took there was was rough and there was still enough time on the shot clock and remember they were they were only down one so it's not like they had to get it it was a a must three or anything like that was just it was just rough and I mean it was not the most memorable necessarily of Wes Matthews miscues late in the game but I just I, I wanted to make sure that we mentioned that in the story of this of this contest yeah and the reason he took that shot is because they were going for the two for one and i certainly countenance going for the two for one whenever you can that was a very difficult shot though uh, and you know i mean that's like a 20 percent three-pointer probably with going to his right with a hand in his face like that and also the fact that you're down one you know i think maybe it got a little bit into two into his head that we got to get the two for one here maybe he thought he would be more open or something i mean that's that's you know if they get a stop on the other end then they can come right back at, and maybe they score a two-pointer and win the game you know the part of the problem was they didn't get the stop on the other end and then it looks really bad so i'm not sure whether that was the right decision or not i know what he was trying to do i wasn't like oh my god what the hell is this guy doing and there's maybe even an argument that that shot plus potentially getting another shot later and remember either way if you take the if you wait in that possession then you're only getting one shot and then and boston's going to get one shot regardless it wouldn't shock me if the math were still in favor of him actually taking that shot when he did uh even though it obviously looked out terrible let's go to utah and houston now unless you have anything further uh really absolutely stunning from houston just how well they played it in that first half on both ends and harden was just unbelievable i mean it's just they had absolutely no answers for him but also just depressing that it seems like this is not going to be a series I, I mean even even to me if utah somehow squeaks out two wins i'm just gonna be like seeing these first two games you're just like man like what what hope do they have uh maybe they'll they'll solve something offensively but i mean that that's probably where we need to start despite harden's heroics with just utah having no chance to score on these guys i mean they had 44 points in the first half on 50 possession 88 offensive rating and houston led by 26 they had a 140 offensive rating uh in the first half the jazz are turning it over like crazy they're missing a ton of threes i mean i, I don't even know where to go with this team at, at this point it's uh, houston has dominated and they've been great but it is also to me been a very disappointing series both of those things are true i mean utah struggling to score offensively against houston's scheme is not particularly surprising we saw it in the later part of the series last year utah has a lot of strengths as, as an offense they have a lot of strengths as a defense houston's approach negates a lot of those and also their their talent and execution you know it's not just hey you're running the right you know you're you're picking the right play in tech mobile and you just stopping you're calling with the opponents and you're stopping them every time they're doing a lot of great work but you it is a reminder of utah's deficiencies in terms of one-on-one creators having a guy and we talked about this on the nba cast and kyle corver who is a, a, a valuable regular season player he was an important part of getting them back on track especially offensively but the aggressiveness with which houston attacks the jazz when corver is on the floor 
makes him very difficult to play and that they don't have other options. You know, their best three-point shooter in this game was Royce O'Neal. Royce O'Neal was three for six. Houston's largely going to concede those shots. But really where I want to go with this is just how ridiculous in the Rockets were in James Harden's minutes, how big of a role he had. I mean, so Harden only played 33 minutes. I mean, granted, 33 minutes is a lot for a game that was pretty well settled in the third quarter, but just just a great performance from him. 32 points, 11 to 24 from the field, 6 to 13 from three, 4 to 5 from the line, 13 rebounds, 10 assists, and when he was on the floor... He really, even sometimes when Chris Paul was out there, he was really the alpha and the omega. He had a 61% true shooting on 43% usage, but then also a 50% assist rate, which is just incredible. Yeah, that is incredible. Uh, Especially because 50% assist rate, that doesn't count in his own basket. So he's basically scoring or assisting on every single basket is what that that ends up being. Uh, I think that's how how they calculate out assist rate, at least. Um, we talk a little bit on the, uh, I guess I'll get back to the Jazz off- offense and Houston's defense in a second. The Jazz came out a little bit of a modified strategy this time. They didn't just do the, hey, let him go all the way to the rim. And Harden was almost, he looked like he was like happy because now he actually gets to like make some real moves instead of just going to the rim and, and having the advantage already and, and trying to uh, make the decision. He at least gets to try to fake his guy out first. And, uh, oh, he did that. <laughs> he had the step back work working six of ten from three in that first half it was just absolutely unguardable rubio was too small to deal with him you know i mean that's the one of the big parts about Harden, especially because you're allowed to he's allowed to just get that forearm into guys and knock him backwards i mean you really if you're going to guard Harden in an iso at this point you really need to be at least six seven and have long arms and be pretty strong and be quick enough to stay in front of him and uh not too many dudes in the league like that at, at this point in time so the step back was working one of our questions coming into this postseason is is that step back going to go down for him uh, through two games the answer is absolutely yes and i'm sorry i missed what he was five of nine three in the first half um it's something he, else that i thought was really important not only with harden but also with with his teammates was guys like pj tucker and eric gordon hitting a large proportion of their open threes i mean pj tucker went four for four in the early going of this game those were really backbreakers while utah generated their fair portion of open corner threes as well and they were not going in yeah that that was a, a big problem for them um a little bit more on on Harden's offense though and Houston in, in general that 13 to 26 from three 26 of their 42 field goal attempts were threes and then they also got 15 free throw attempts and got a couple of three shot fouls in there as well Harden got fouled for a four-point play and he just makes the right decision nearly every time and I think a big part of why the Warriors have been the team that has successfully defended him the best and the Spurs in that 2017 playoffs the second best in kind of this modern iteration of Harden although he's really even a much better player than he was two years ago is those guys actually have the athletes and the anticipation and the length to make him uncomfortable whether it's the help defenders who can cover ground with their length and do two things at once like crash down on Capella and then close out to a shooter potentially uh or can actually reach in and strip him every once in a while or fake towards him and get back to their man and maybe intercept the passes they have you got to have some sharp
marks that are not going to just make the reads easy for Harden and that's what it's been here I mean it's been we highlighted one of these uh, on Twitter at Nate Duncan NBA we're usually tweeting out a lot of good film clips when we're doing the NBA cast thanks to uh, Ben Dull our director of basketball research for that of where he drives the middle there's only one guy on the strong side Capella is already on the strong side that's a nice little adjustment to put Capella actually kind of on the strong side as Harden is, is attacking to the middle from the the right wing to have Capella on that right side so now you only have one guy there Gobert steps up the guy guarding the wing has to get into Capella's leg so he can't get the alley-oop and then there's just absolutely no one there to rotate out to the shooter he set up a three for house that way and every time he was just making the right read and it's because he's not under enough pressure whether it's the on-ball guy whether it's those guys on the wing fooling him he just he's not turning the ball over all he had three turnovers but you mentioned the the usage how high it is that's totally acceptable there um so Utah did try getting out on the floor and trapping a little bit more in the second half before I frankly turned it off uh we'll see whether they stick with that or not. I think actually if you're gonna try yet another strategy on him you might as well just save that for the next game instead of showing your hand in the second half when you're not gonna win anyway um so and then defensively one of the things I thought was really impressive from Houston is how much they disrupted just the normally easy stuff that Utah does right a lot the handoffs which kind of operate as pick and rolls that they love to run I lost count of how many times guys stayed Chris Paul was a master at this stayed with their man blew up that handoff got a hand on it either caused a deflection and made him reset or actually got a steal as well and the Jazz had nine first half turnovers turned over on 18 percent of their possessions you can't do that against Houston either they even got some fast break points the Rockets 13 in the first half largely off of those turnovers and Utah did get a few offensive rebounds but not enough to make up for that we saw a lot of Donovan Mitchell getting thrown flaming bags and having to iso but it was only at the very end of the the last possession of the half that he actually isoed against Harden and he was able to get by Harden and I think they helped out and got an open shot which of course they missed because the Jazz can't hit a shot but I think the numbers show that Harden isolating him doesn't work that well some of that it probably includes some post-ups but I still think that he's easily if you're gonna be forced to iso which they obviously are they can't get anything else you better go at Harden because and I think also part of the reason why he wasn't as good against the Jazz last year, part of the reason why he struggled in that Warriors series was they really made him defend out, like not even in the in the post, but out on the floor every possession. The Jazz really have just have not gone at Harden at all. It really, there's been no concerted effort, not in the post. That's not what they do, and definitely not on the perimeter either. So you got to make him defend someone like Mitchell, whether it's off the ball, getting a switch on him, and then just hit, don't even run him off a screen necessarily, but just have him sprint to the other side of the floor, something to tire the this dude out because he's just doing whatever he wants right now and not being made to feel remotely uncomfortable and he's just going to dissect the game when that's the case beyond that there's also the possibility by involving him in more actions on or off ball that Harden can get in foul trouble and that's the best defense on these elite offensive players is to try to get them out of the game or at least you just make him a worse defender yeah um biggest problem though for Utah Houston's not going to shoot 13 out of 26 all the time no matter what how good 
the three-pointers they get. Utah is 422 in the first half, and they missed eight wide-open corner three-point attempts. I think Royce O'Neal finally hit one right as the first quarter ended. They had seven open corner threes that they just missed in the first half. And the loss of Kyle Korver, in part maybe due to this knee soreness, and in part because Quinn Snyder, perhaps rightly, is terrified to play him when Harden is on the floor because they're just going to pick and roll him to death. Without Korver, they really just don't have good enough shooting. And before that Korver trade, the reason they traded two second-round picks to get him was because they are generating a ton of open threes and just weren't making him, right? I mean, the Jazz are famous for having some of the best shot quality in the league, but I mean, they don't just don't have reliable three-point shooters. I mean, Mitchell was one out of six, but you know his threes aren't generally open ones. He had one corner three that spun out off an offensive rebound, but he's taking most of his off the dribble against this team. But you've got Rubio, Crowder, Favors missed two open corner threes. Ingles only got two. He's one of their more reliable shooters. That's who Houston is very concerned about sticking to. So they, we've talked about this so many times. They do a great job of not guarding the guys who don't need to be guarded. And the Jazz are just not making them pay. And without Korver available, I just don't think they have enough good shooters. They're getting threes. I mean, 22 three-point attempts in the first half. Like, they generally don't take them unless it's Mitchell, unless they're open. But they're just not threatening enough. They don't have the shooting. And Korver, I think, acquiring him kind of saved their season offensively. Obviously, the schedule getting easier did too. But he's off the board now in this series. Something else I want to mention. You you talked about it a little bit earlier, but Clint Capella looked great defensively. And this yeah. season, especially in the first half, but even in the second half, you know, I, I think that he wasn't quite at the level that we were so effusive about last season. And he was impacting shots at the rim. He was grabbing defensive rebounds. And he has some tough assignments in this series. Gobert is a lot to deal with. And I thought he was very impactful, got got some help blocks. And also, I mean, contests are such an important part of their defensive scheme. I mean, you want to make sure those shots are hard and somebody's going to have to get the rebound. But if Capella can affect it, especially against the Jazz, when they're not getting a ton on offense, if you can make those shots harder, it makes a huge difference. And he absolutely did so in this game in particular. So where do we go from here? Oh, oh one more thing on Capella, I'll say too, you know, they've had him guarding more out on the floor in a more conventional pick and roll defense, but they're, they're still bringing him up to the level of the ball and taking advantage of his mobility. But I think where I liked what he was doing is, you know, the Jazz were slipping a lot of screens for example and they had a little bit of success with that early in game one and so what houston i think what they either know to do or they've been told to do is if you're the on-ball guy even if you hear a screen called out just play it like it's normal defense stay in front of your guy and then capella if the screen doesn't actually make contact then he doesn't ever actually have to help out right i mean if no screen is set in theory you should just be able to stay in front of your guy and capella can just roll back to the room and there's no advantage gained in that action i thought they did a really nice job both getting through those kind of fake screens it not getting slowed down by the fact a screen has been called out and then capella of recognizing when in fact contact had been made on the screen in which case he really had to step out hard or if he could just retreat if no contact had been made and it doesn't help that the jazz ball handlers just are, are not that dynamic turning the corner anyway last thing on this one i'm still gonna beat this drum again what dribblers are doing with their forearms what guys in the post are doing with their forearms is just getting completely ridiculous it was highlighted early in the second half where ricky rubio was pressuring up on harden at half court and harden just like sticks his forearm into him and shoves him away and then rubio like grabs his forearm and gets called for a foul after he got shoved away and it just it highlighted like the nba says no if you put your forearm on someone as a defender that's a foul if he's if he's facing the basket and 
2004 they initiated that the last few years dribblers have gotten really good at whenever they feel a forearm on them just throwing up a shot and at least that's not generally a shooting foul anymore but it highlights the contact and the refs call it every time so you just can't you can't put your forearm on somebody but that's defensive hand checking so why are you now allowed to offensive hand check where whether it's Harden on the step back whether it's Aldridge or Nikola Jokic in the post uh, Kawhi is doing I mean like everyone does it it's Harden is the best at it because he's just the best at any sort of exploitation of the rules but this doesn't apply only to him and also helps that he's so strong and so quick with that shove i mean he he knocked rubio down in one of these oh man so broke his ankles looks really bad but yeah he also shoved him you know so uh that's something i really really think the need the the league needs to look at it's just getting completely impossible to guard anyone and offense is high enough i think if you take away that rule i mean like when we were playing pickup like i've never played against someone in pickup who just like shoved me with his forearm all the time right like you didn't you see if you you could lower your shoulder a little bit if you got past the guy you know he can't get through you to get the steal like that's enough to be able to protect your dribble like you shouldn't be able to shove the guy right in the chest to keep him from taking away your dribble or to get room for a step back or or whatever um anything else on this one or should we talk yeah uh, yeah yeah, when you said you were banging a drum i thought it might be another one that came up in this game and that was quinn snyder sitting donovan mitchell when he got in foul trouble and not not bringing him back in and basically once mitchell came back for the last 15 seconds of or something like that of the second of the first half first quarter first First quarter quarter. the game was basically over yeah it was 39 to 19 at that point he gets his second foul on a three-shot foul from harden uh mitchell has not been good defending harden uh he can defend a lot of guys but harden these last two years he hasn't been good on um yeah and so that sends him to the bench and they're already down 10 at that point i mean you're on the road you're getting your ass kicked and now you're going to take out your one guy who can create a shot at mitchell i mean he had a massive struggle he was 4 14 in the, in the competitive portion of the game nine points again zero free throw times he's got to find a way to get to the line too offensively like he he these scoop shots that he's been able to find as a way to finish at the basket are great that was a big big thing for him to add to his game at louisville but he's got to figure out a way to get more contact on some of these drives and you know get at least five six free throw attempts a game he, he is he needs to learn some more tricks because he's just not or body hunt a little more on his drives because he's it's gonna be really hard for him to be efficient unless he's gonna just shoot the three incredibly well over the course of his career and he, he was better in the second half but he needs some more tricks against what has been a very good houston defense in the playoffs so i was in portland last week for the nike hoop summit and uh watched the game of course uh, as well for if you don't know what the nike hoop summit is it's definitely the best event on the high school all-star circuit you've got mcdonald's and jordan brand those have a lot more players and they don't really have anything to play for this is usa select team which is usa basketball trying to put together the best team of guys who are about to be freshmen who have been in the usa basketball program versus the world select team it's become more and more international eligible players who are based domestically but you'll get every once in a while a a few guys who come from overseas or or brazil i think technically due to the isthmus panama brazil is is not overseas and the world guys get there on monday they're coached by this guy roy rana who's the uh, canadian youth coach coach at ryerson university in canada 
And they actually practice twice a day all week and really try to win the game. And USA, they get there on Wednesday, but they do two practices a day. And everybody plays hard. I mean, guys are taking charges in the game and uh, the practices are open. Only one USA practice is open to NBA scouts, but all the practices are open to the media. So it's a great chance to get familiar with some of the prospects for the draft after this one. We've had some legendary players go through there that we've gotten a, a beat on. Sometimes it's even but more useful to see them in these practices and doing shooting drills than it is in kind of a weird college system like carl anthony towns was one of those guys who's just out there stroking nba3 after nba3 as a seven foot high school senior and then he went to kentucky and he never took threes you would never know they would be the awesome shooter if you hadn't seen it in another setting so i you know i don't see these guys a ton i try not to get too myopic just based on this week uh, guys can be injured we didn't get a chance to see zion last year because it, he was injured but I, I think it's really useful so uh was there anyone that, that you had kind of heard about Danny that you were really curious about I could try to give a few of the impressions on him the guy that I've heard the most about and and was interested in this class is James Wiseman Wiseman is he's a little bit over seven feet from what I remember and has it like so he's got a big got a big frame in terms of that but then his game is probably the more important part of whether he's theoretically like a number one overall pick caliber guy yeah I mean he looked like a top five pick is supposed to look maybe even as a as a number one overall pick is supposed to look he's a a big lefty center seven foot seven one great measurements in terms of standing reach wingspan what most impressed me about him is his mobility defensively he was able to switch out on guys pretty well and he just comes across the paints for these massive highlight blocks pretty good timing and recognition on those plays so he looks like someone who could eventually be a defensive player of the year type of candidate that's really where it starts for him runs the floor excellent athlete coordinated he also has a a developing touch he actually hit like a step back off the dribble in one of the scrimmages and looks comfortable if not amazing out to the FIBA three-point line certainly you know he's got kind of a long stroke that's a little bit behind his head he doesn't look like a pure natural shooter but he looks like someone who could be able to hit some shots you know I don't see him as your Carl Anthony Towns like awesome shooter but I could see him maybe being competent at the NBA three you know I wouldn't say he's like a Jaron Jackson type of shooter necessarily where it's part of his game but I think he's trying to add it to his game also gets really good extension on his hook shots has a little bit of a a right hand a lot of times you'll see left-handed guys in particular don't have a great offhand where he's developing right now is in trying to power up around the rim when he has a body on him he's not that strong not weak at all I mean he's got a really good he's gonna gonna have have a great physical profile ultimately but not that comfortable just powering up powering through guys he wants to kind of bring the ball down he can get knocked off balance a little bit he wants to go up with his left hand so he's not someone where you're just like oh this guy has like preternatural finishing ability when he's not able to get out in space and finish with a big dunk which he certainly is extremely capable of doing so he he was kind of my tier one of guys of these guys that i've seen there are a few others who are in this class that we didn't get a chance to see and this is usa basketball's conception they're trying to build a team so they didn't have uh, some of the guys that are in the top 10 in this recruiting class necessarily um who else uh, i guess i can just go 
ahead and say who my tier two guys are. Um, sure, that makes some sense. Yeah. Uh, two point guards, uh, Nico Mannion, who's the son of, oh, I don't remember the guy's, the guy's name. He played at like Tars. He had like a cup of coffee in the NBA. Then he went overseas and married an Italian woman. So Nico actually is uh, Italian eligible. So he was on the world team. Redheaded point guard. Got some comparisons to Trey Young. He's not as quick as Trey. Doesn't quite have that deep range, quick trigger three, but excellent shooter. Good pick and roll guy. Was awesome in the actual game until the very end when he missed some free throws and, and took a couple of bad shots and had some turnovers. But I think he had 28 points in the actual game. Ran the team. Just really smart guy. Has the Trey Young bullshit foul drawing gene. He's going to Arizona next year. Wiseman, by the way, is going to uh, Memphis to play for Penny Hardaway. I think he's from Memphis as well. So Manny is, is going to be interesting. One. I mean, his physical profile is not amazing. Average wingspan, about 6'2", 6'3". He's got some some bounce, though. His mom's actually a volleyball player. So he, he can get out for some dunks in space, but not, I, I think, going to be, you know, he's going to be more of like a Steve Nash-style crafty finisher than someone who's going to really go through people. But very solid shooter, very solid passer. Someone I'm very interested to see at the next level and how he matches up against really athletic competition. Cole Anthony is Greg Anthony's son, also a point guard out of New York. I look at, I would say Mannion probably has more star potential to me than Cole Anthony because I'm not, like, Cole is a solid passer, good defensive profile, strong, solid shooter, but has kind of funky form. You know, I think he's going to be a little bit more of a volume guy than, like, a real knockdown, like, 40% type of guy. But he hit some tough NBA threes in the game when they went under on him. I mean, that, that's very impressive for a guy who's 18 years old. But, you know, solid athlete, but not an unbelievable athlete, not an unbelievable finisher at the rim. He's going to have to learn some tricks as far as, like, getting to the foul line as well i see him kind of more and again this is all just based on seeing him for a few days here so opinions very much subject to change but i, I kind of saw him as both him and manny and his guys who could be solid nba point guards i wouldn't have say star potential for either of these guys and then an interesting name who, who had a better week to my understanding than what we've seen from him before or others have seen from him before is uh precious achua who was on the world team as well plays high school ball in the u.s though and great physical profile for him modern day stretch four type of profile you know nine foot standing reach seven foot wingspan gets really good extension like strong body which has got a lot of room to fill out and his jump shot is really improved he's got great form was hitting a lot of contested long twos hit a few FIBA threes as well and when he drives he gets really really good extension he's got huge hands so he can palm the ball get it out in front of him the feel there is the question for him not the greatest passer took a, a lot of really contested shots but they were going in for him so you, you understand why he was taking him uh but it, his athleticism i think is very very intriguing with he's really the only guy in this group that i looked at as having you know an elite physical profile for an nba wing slash four there have not been that many guys who have come through in the last couple of years who have that kind of profile and then uh third tier josh green australian guard he's going to arizona with mannion six foot six really fast acceleration in space runs the floor excellent transition player can be a good finisher at the run doesn't have a great feel for finishing when it's not a dunk but it can get up for some really nice finishes in space his shooting touches his, his elbows kind of fly out he he's, may not develop as much there as a shooter that's one of the big questions for scouts and then as a defender he puts the effort in i mean that was one of the 
nice things to see is just like guys actually really trying on defense all week and made some nice plays to help defender can get a little spacey off the ball though but he's someone who there's a lot to like about him but you're also not sure like is this guy gonna be your every down pick and roll type of player if he's not that and he's not gonna be like a really solid shooter from three then maybe there's not a great role for him despite his athleticism you know does he turn into like you know a Corey Brewer type of guy who's just an athlete and I don't think he's the level of defender that people thought Corey Brewer was going to be coming out of school that he never actually turned into um but plays hard and an intriguing prospect if he can really refine his jump shot doesn't have a ton of great one-on-one moves at at this point in time Isaiah Stewart's going to Washington he's number four in the class big burly what would have used to have been a power forward now a center he's got some ups but he's not a quick jumper he's got to really load up and he had a really nice go in some of the practices posting up using his body not as good during the game because he wasn't able to get great position against some of the world team centers and he's got nice touch around the rim on his hook shots with either hand developing outside jumper someone who i think will have an nba career but just due to the evolution of the center position you know you think of him as maybe more of a late first type of prospect and doesn't have you know the outside touch or the skill level or the defensive acumen or or the ability sliding his feet the way someone like a wendell carter would those guys have kind of similar physical profiles but carter to me is is more of a shot blocker moves his feet better and uh, has a higher skill level offensively and Tyrese Maxey's another guy I thought of him as kind of like a poor man's buddy healed and as a low release but good shooter he probably won't be as good a shooter as healed but few are uh but more ball skills as a nice floater some explosiveness to get to the rim but he, he's kind of combo guardy you know not great size for the two guard position he's going to Kentucky and then the last guy to mention is Vernon Carey who really was coming off of an ankle injury did not play much in the actual game he he's another center prospect i think he's a rated either two or three in the class right now and carry is left-handed doesn't have as good of a jump shot as wiseman does you know i wouldn't see that being a strength for him anytime soon explosive big but hard to evaluate him with that that ankle injury i mean some scouts that i talked to thought that you know he was maybe a little bit overrated in the class as far as not having the greatest skill level not being that good defensively you know he's strong and explosive but it was kind of living on that at the high school level but we'll see we'll have to get a a better look at him at at duke because he was injured and wasn't really able to play much in the game so uh yeah i droned on a while there but that's fine and and something that's interesting (laughs) about vernon carey i i I would have liked to i've i think i've seen him somewhere but it was a little while ago is that he is the the son of an nba of an nfl player being a a high high level basketball prospect isn't isn't unusual but vernon carey is the son of an nfl offensive lineman and that's a little bit different he's a when i remember when i saw him he's a big boy like i mean he's oh yeah listed at 277 but he can get up so i think that's probably part of what's leading to it but i wonder how his game is going to fit in with where the nba is going i i will just need to see him more when he plays a dip yeah i think the concerns are going to be uh, on the defensive end maybe more with him all right anything to talk about before we go here offseason previews are still rolling at the athletic the memphis one did not come out on wednesday it looks like it'll come out on thursday and then i'll have miami that'll be out by the end of the week and 
again, those will, those will be the last of the kind of the non-playoff teams that aren't in the top five of the lottery. And then Real GM Radio will probably be out before the next, before we record Dunked On tomorrow night. And ah, screw it. If he, I'll, I'll get mad at him if he, if he no-shows it. But it's going to be with Kevin Pelton talking about all eight playoff series. going to be a pretty great one. Yeah, that, that'll be awesome. I think after two games, I'm always interested to hear KP's thoughts on where these series are going. And we'll be back for NBA Cast tomorrow. We're going to do game three, our first game three of Philly and Brooklyn. Then we'll probably finish up game three of Denver and San Antonio. And that'll be, you know, three and a half hours. So that'll probably be enough of that tomorrow. But we'll be recording, obviously, on all three games. And then on Friday, after Pacers Celtics, I'm going to be on ABC 7 in the Bay Area if you happen to see that uh, on uh, my second ever live TV performance. But my first ever on broadcast. You know, I know I've really made it. So we'll talk to you all tomorrow night. Till then.